Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Lee Newman, author of the short story collection, Nobody Gets Out Alive. Good Housekeeping wrote about the collection, the Alaskan wilderness is unforgiving, and so is life for the people who live there. In this arresting collection of stories, we meet people who are fighting not only the snowy tundra, but addiction, heartbreak, complicated families, and the demons so many of us carry with us, regardless of when or where we live. Lee, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Sure. Well, if someone listening hasn't yet heard about your short story collection, Nobody Gets Out Alive, is there a story from the collection that you feel represents the collection? Um. Well, I set the stories, so they're all set in Alaska, but a majority of them I was sort of trying to write about Anchorage because I sort of, I did not want to write about like the traditional frontier um, narrative. Um, and I wanted to talk about, you know, what urban Alaska was like, what town life is like, because, you know, people in Alaska do have things like Costco's and garages and I feel like so many people think you know I, I did live in the deep wilderness growing up but mm -hmm. I also you know like went to elementary school and like you know we had a blender um <laughs> not always I mean one cabin we lived in had no electricity or plumbing uh that's called a dry cabin but we also had a house with like a blender and a and a garage door opener um and so I really do feel like the first story of the book, Hal Palace, and that's probably the best known story. Um, it was in the Paris Review and it, it won a number of awards. Like it was in Best American Short Stories. But that's a story about an elderly woman, you know, in her late 60s who's had, you know, five husbands and she's living in a house in, in Anchorage on a lake where um, everybody has a float plane in the backyard. And she's trying to sell her house because she's lost all her money and she's the only, um, the only female, uh, homeowner on that lake, which is actually a very real thing. I based it on the only female homeowner I ever knew, um, on that lake, um, just because so much of the, um, you know, Alaska is majority male. Mm -hmm. And at the time, especially of that story, it can be a very male dominated frontier, uh, environment, which I definitely grew up in, but I kind of am fascinated by Alaskan women. And so she to me emblemizes like that really um, complicated juncture between like strength and endurance and will, and then also, you know, the need for tenderness, you know what I mean? Sure. <laughs> She's really down and out. So to me, that book, that story captured so much of what I was trying to talk about and all the women throughout the nine stories or eight stories. Well, I'm curious, what is it that fascinates you about uh, Alaskan women? Well, probably, you know, in some ways, it's got to be a little narcissistic, I think, you know, having grown up mm -hmm. this way where um, I did live on a lake in Anchorage with my dad and um, we had a, we had a couple of planes in the backyard and for a long period, it was, you know, we had a pool table and you know, I was always hanging around with a bunch of my dad's friends uh, and we had all kind of shenanigans going on, you know, um, I, I don't, it's not like that as much anymore, uh, in Alaska, but, you know, uh, flying and almost dying all the time. And, uh, 
And I say that lightly, um, but as a kid, it was a big adventure, right? Sure. You know, we'd go out and the plane would be overloaded and you go, Jesus Christ, I hope we make it over the trees, you wow. know, or, uh, and we, a couple of times we almost didn't, we almost bit it uh, a couple of times. Um, uh, and we laughed about it at the time. And then, and I don't remember like living in terror the way, um, people talk about, you know, having so many brushes with death when you're young, but, um, it's definitely in my mind. So I guess for me, there is always personally this, um, this, I guess, rhinoceros that's on the outside being tough and strong and making decisions and, you know, uh, wanting to basically survive and being very kind of hardcore about that. And then there's always this other part, you know, that is much softer and much, um, much more tender that I'm, I'm, I'm always trying to reconcile how do you live with those two parts? You know, who do you show that tenderness to and who do you not? And I think many women, regardless of whether they grew up in Alaska or not, or grew up in a frontier lifestyle, you know, have to negotiate these two poles all the time. You know, sure. how do you go out, make the money, take the kids, you know what I mean? And then yeah. how can you be, how can you be vulnerable? How do you do that when everything is sort of telling you not to be that way? Yeah. That's a that's a tough uh, thing to navigate. Um, yeah. Well, I know that you wrote a memoir about growing up in Alaska and the tumult in your life after your parents' divorce. That book was Steel Points North, One Alaskan Childhood, One Grown-Up World, One Long Journey Home. I'm curious, when you were writing your memoir, were you also writing and submitting short stories at the same time? I wasn't. Um, I had written short stories um, – I would say like, you know, all throughout grad school and then afterwards. And then I wrote a really bad novel that no one will ever read. Um, and what happened was at the end of the novel, I'd spent so many years. I made this mistake that many writers, young writers do in that uh, when I wrote the novel, I should have shared my manuscript with more people. Instead, I kind of hid and, and, and worked on it and worked on it, worked out without a lot of feedback. And feedback would have really helped. Um, because it was beautifully, I think the sentences, I'm very proud of the sentences in that, but the story itself was flawed. And story is so much of what makes a book, you know. I really do believe in story. And that's what I call plot. But I think it's story. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the way I can wrap my head around it, storytelling. And um, when I left that novel and I realized it didn't work and I was just devastated because like I had a young kid. I was working at like five o'clock in the morning for like four years um, I moved into nonfiction and I, and I moved into nonfiction cause I thought, well, I have messed up. I have not written a story I really like that really, you know, says what I wanted to say and the novel doesn't work. So I'll write nonfiction. And, um, I did, I wrote that memoir and then I also wrote just a ton of essays and I was working at Oprah. So for about, I want to say like eight years, I wrote nothing but nonfiction. Um, and in a way it helped me really find my voice, you know? in a way it was more freeing somehow with than fiction was because I didn't have to make up the narrative, right? The narrative mm -hmm. was mine. And then I just had to work on how to, how to organize it and how to edit it, make it into a story. Um, but when I finished that memoir, I was, again, I was said, okay, well, I've always loved fiction. And that was my first love. I mean, I even went to graduate school for fiction. I, I didn't even know anything about nonfiction or how to, about a, to write it when I started writing it. And, um, I just said, I've always wanted to write a perfect story. 
And by that, I mean a story that you would arrive at the end and the end would feel both surprising and inevitable. And there'd be no hesitation on my part because I would have figured out a way to jigger the story in a way that it flowered at the end naturally. Whereas when I had written stories before, I'd always like, how am I going to end this? Where is this going? I'm going to be seized by this crazy panic. And I feel like the story's kind of read that way. So I just started reading short stories. And I mean, I read every short story collection published probably, you know, in the past 20 years, (laughs) plus all the classics. And I did not allow myself to read novels. I just read stories over and over and over again, just sort of hoping that, you know, of course, patterns would emerge about how you structure, tell a story. But then also, I feel like it kind of seeps into your DNA, you know, like... Um, that's a lot of how I learned how to write fiction because I never studied it. I would just read essays and be like, okay, I'm going to do something like that, but then totally different, you know, Mm -hmm. it gives you kind of a a template or like a composition that gets into your brain and sticks there, uh, in different ways. And you can try different things. And the first story I wrote was one called nobody gets out alive, which later, um, went into Harper's and obviously it's the title story, but I must've struggled for, I don't know, almost a year moving through that story. It begins with this huge mastodon fossil that's in the living room of this wedding party and people are having to jump over the tusks, which is a, it's a real thing in Alaska. I mean, people go out, they take their helicopter, they land on a glacier and all of these, because of global warming, all of these fossils are coming right up to the surface. And you can literally pick them up and put them in your airplane and drive home or fly home. And, um, and, I wrestled with it and wrestled with it, but I remember coming to the end and knowing the end was inevitable, that the end would, would be with the Mastodon again um, and this couple kind of stealing a, one of the tusks and running home. Um, you know, that story was a lot about marriage too, you know, and, mm-hmm. and how, how little we know when we get into it and how much we learn very quickly. So um, to me, it felt like, such um, almost like a celestial experience in that I understood the form all of a sudden, right? And I had all these things to say. And so it led immediately to the next story, right? Where I took a character out of that story and I moved her over. Her name was Janice and I put her in 1975 and I wrote her story. So, um, and that's sort of how it went for me over and over again. That sounds great. I'm curious, do you remember the first story that you had accepted for publication and what that I felt do. like when you got I that notification? I do. It was like 2001. These, and for the time when I was writing stories, um, I know this is going to sound crazy, I was not writing about Alaska. I did not write about Alaska. I don't know what I was thinking I was writing. Um, I think I was writing about things I didn't even know anything about, like the suburbs, because I think I'd read like a lot of Raymond Carver right? and, you know what I mean, Laurie Moore. And I just did not, I mean, I think I was just copying people, right? I mean, fundamentally, we're trying to be, you know, you're young, right? And you're, but the first story I ever had, it was at the Northwest Review and I got, they actually wrote me a letter. <laughs> saying your story's been accepted. And I was just like, I think I was, I, I was just um, flabbergasted, you know, just so, and I'd liked the Northwest Review. I'd read a lot of, I mean, I would say that to other people who are writers. I was submitting at that time, you know, I'd submit to 20 places a month and I had like a little chart, you know, it's not like now where it's all codified and I would send out my little stories mm-hmm. and I would make myself do it because I was terrified. You know, it was like, I'd written for years before and never submitted anything. I was too afraid. 
Um, and I set this chart to myself, you know, in the bathroom or on the first of the month, I had to send 20 stories out to different magazines and I had to research these magazines, you know, send them to the places I really loved, mm-hmm. not just the places I thought I could get into. Right. And that actually worked. That part worked because then I started getting a lot of stories in. That's all, great. I, all those suburban stories are weird, but they were all published. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I'm curious when you were working on um, the short stories for this collection, and and when you write short stories that were not in the collection, when you sit down to write a new story, I'm curious about the process for you. Do you have the entire story in your head? Oh, do not you, at all. Do you no, just write a first slightly. line and see where the narrative yeah. takes you? Yeah, that I really have to have a first line. And sometimes the first line will take me, and I mean like months. I'm not joking. Um, <laughs> like it kind of establishes the voice, you know, and it's got to be composed in some way. And frequently I'll fixate on something. So it helps me kind of get into this. I don't want to like make it like mystical and mm-hmm. weird, but it is kind of, you know, like sure. it helps me get into this dream state. So, so I fixated on, um, that mastodon skull and I wrote pages and pages and pages about the mastodon skull. And then I realized, oh no, we need, like we got to get, you know, we got to take these eight pages about a mastodon skull and shrink it down to like three paragraphs and get some people in here, <laughs> you know, have some stakes. Uh, I mean that, you know, like some emotional life here. Cause that's for me, right, so much of writing is not, it can't just be about the pretty language. It's got to be about the story. And there's got to be some kind of like, really like meaning, you know, and heart in it or, or it doesn't quite work for me. Um, I mean, I mean, that's my goal. I want all of the, I want all the goodies. And, um, so I will, so that, that object that I fixate on could be, there's one about a corn, uh, uh like a Mazzola, uh, corn oil bottle. <laughs> that was one thing I fixed on. And another one in how palace, that story we were talking about, it was the house, Right. Originally, I fixated on the wrong thing. I fixated on this wild black lab, a vicious black lab, actually, which I thought was hilarious, only because I've had one. Yeah, um, they're not vicious. And, yeah, you know, she was, <laughs> you know, I know they're not vicious, but sometimes, you know, you yeah, got a yeah. rogue, you got a rogue dog. Mm-hmm. And so um, that will sort of like meditate and marinate. And that will take me quite a while because through the object and through working with the language on the first three pages, the people will come out of it. How do they react to that dog or that house or that mastodon skull? How do we, um, who are the people that come out of that? And so I will work on that first, probably once the people start to come out, it'll be about 10 pages. That's my setup. And I will work on that for months. And then I stop because I'll get stuck. Um, I have all the people, I have the place, I have the setup, but I don't know what's going to happen with the story at all. And usually at that point, I just let go and start another story. And I'll take three or four of these beginnings and I go to Alaska and I stay at my friend Jeff's cabin uh, and I will literally finish them in a row. Uh, just I'll write one and I write the story out and the next, you know, 20 pages to the ending usually it takes me three to four days. Um, it's very remote there mm-hmm. and... Um, I live in a little cabin by a rushing creek and I just write 24 hours a day till the story is done. Then when it's done, I go for this crazy run and I'm not even a runner. I don't even know how to run really, <laughs> but I run to like get rid of my own, you know, craziness. And, uh, and then I'll come back um, and I'll start another one and I'll write that one out. 
And so at the end, every time I go there, I usually go there for three weeks. I'll, I'll come out with, you know, four stories or three stories. Done. Done. Wow. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And uh, so, so what is the revision process like for you? Are you revising throughout this whole process that you just described? Yeah, I mean, I write in a time-consuming way in mm-hmm. that it's hard for me to move forward until I know that the paragraphs and sentences are right right, and that the feel of everything is right. I can't because I've learned that when I try and force it and just go forward, I'll make a mistake. Like because of the language and the setup or the people aren't right, I'll make the wrong decision. I'll make them do the wrong thing. And then it'll all be false and I have to cut all that and go back and find out the moment where I lied to myself or I lied to like the emotions of the story and made someone do something or say something that's not really where I want it to be, like not capturing a feeling that's right. So I just literally go over and over and over and over starting at page one, you know, and then I'm able to add a page by the end of four hours. Right. Maybe sometimes, Mm -hmm. sometimes not. Right. Um, it's a very different, it's a, like, you know, story writing is just a very intricate, you know, jewel-like, you feel very much like a jeweler, you know, putting a little prong around the diamond and, you know, putting a little another prong and then taking that one out until you get it really set. It's totally different, I found, because I'm, I'm writing a novel now for Scribner, and that is, you don't do that. You have to keep moving. You have to keep moving in the novel I'm learning. And it's a really hard learning process. I just, you know, I remember spending like in my novel, I spent like, I'm not kidding you. I think three months just writing about these. It's set in the North Pole, in North Pole, mm-hmm. which is a town, it's, yeah. you know, um, and it's a very remote town outside Fairbanks. And I was writing about opera records, old fashioned opera records that this girl is listening to every day when her mother goes to work. And you know, at some point I, you know, wrote, you know, 20 pages about the opera records. And then I realized, okay, there's literally no story here. She's been alone in a cabin for 20 pages. <laughs> Nobody cares. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So I had, uh, I had to start a new kind of storytelling, which has actually been a lot of fun. You know, every day something happens. 
That's that's good. So I'm curious, how is this novel writing experience going compared to that first one that you said you should have shown to people? Well, I think the first one was really based in Anchorage, and it was really about um, the, the same concerns as this story. I just figured out a way to tell the story better through stories instead of a novel. Um, and so I didn't want to go back to the same material of like, you know, um, kind of swashbucklers of the wilderness. Uh, uh, often people, some people with huge amounts of wealth, some people with nothing which is sort of where I grew up in this very economically diverse, um, you know, like a lot of frontier towns, right? The haves Mm -hmm. and the have-nots. You grow up in a big bundle of like kids running everywhere with, you know, for me, you know, a tube top and a pair of jeans and a, quite frankly, like a bear gun. So we didn't didn't get killed. But um, I kind of wrote that. And those stories went all the way from 1915 at the founding of Anchorage all the way to 20, I think probably 2017, you know, when Uber first arrived, that was a real thing I was was talking about was Uber. Um, (laughs) But um, in this new novel, it's actually a historical novel. And um, because when I wrote that story about 1915, I realized I just loved writing about the past. So this novel is actually set in 1953, right after World War II, when there was this huge influx of people to Alaska. And right. it's about it's about my grandmother, who was a Porch Creek Indian, who came up from Alabama. And it's about her running a moonshine business um, and founding what was the only woman's social club in, in an Anchorage. And it was like a place for fancy ladies to come have drinks. My grandmother did not found this club. This is where things get to be fiction, right? <laughs> I, I've always heard about this club. It was called Club 25. And um, and so I, but I do love the idea of an a, all women's moonshine speakeasy. It's what they called refined dining. And, uh, <laughs> and so I'm writing about that. It's a lot of fun. It's uh, a lot of fun to write. So I'm, I'm curious, what prompted the move uh, of your grandmother from Alabama to Anchorage? Well, she didn't. That's the thing. My oh, grandmother, um, my grandmother did not move there. Oh, okay. I think I'm, this I'm is like, yeah, yeah, no, 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 no. I probably said it wrong. So my grandmother, um, I'm writing about my grandmother and her childhood growing up in Alabama. Right, right. She okay. adopted a white woman, which is my mother. Um, and there was all kinds of complications around this situation. Um, and I've always felt so I'm serious. Like I feel very sad. I feel somehow my grandmother's like been erased from history. You know, I can't, um, the way she lived her life and the racial situation when she was living in, Mm -hmm. um, I feel like she was disappeared. She passed as white or tried to for a lot of her life. And so I did not, I could not just set it in Alabama. That's too hard. You know, it's too close to the truth. Um, so I moved her to Alaska and gave her, (laughs) opportunities that she wouldn't have had, but I feel like they tie really into why people go to Alaska, like what they are running from, you know, and what they hope to get out of this thing and what they get out of it and what they don't, you know, the dreams that are realized and the dreams that are not realized at all, because it's still, you know, it's still America. It's still, you know what I mean? It's just further away. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I kind of just wanted to give her, I don't know, a fantasy life, like put everything I knew about her and what she'd been through and then put it in a different context. Cause I do know she was a moonshiner and mm-hmm. she worked in mobile and she ran bottles up and down on the, um, 
her husband that she married was a white man in the merchant marine and I, they ran bottles of of alcohol up and down the east coast and um you know she was a real like soft gangster you know That's what great. i mean she yeah, really yeah. was so putting her in alaska just makes it safer for me it lets my imagination free sure. so i'm not so confined to what actually happened that's great. Well, I'm curious, what writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories or novels? Well, what, the first thing would be just to read, you know, read a lot and let it seep into you in the way that I was talking about, because mm-hmm. I made that mistake with my memoir. I had, didn't know anything about writing a memoir. I sold it on 80 pages and I did not read enough memoirs. I somehow had that idea that like, if you read really other talented people, they'll somehow take over your voice, right. which they will not. You know, if anything, all they're doing by reading, you get all these different strategies and different Mm -hmm. ideas, like you're in a dialogue. And so that's why I really did that with the stories. And I think they improved my writing. It was almost like I went to like, I got my own personal private PhD in short stories just by reading and making notes and breaking things down and thinking about it. So that would be my first, my first thing. And then my second thing would be not to go too fast. I really do think... So much of what makes vivid, emotional, powerful writing is being able to slow yourself down and not run through anything in a couple of sentences and move on, but actually be there for a while. Do you know what I mean? Be mm-hmm. there when, when, the ta- when, the dinner, when the awful dinner table goes quiet. Stay in the quiet and look at what everybody's doing in the, at the table. You know what I mean? While yeah. no one's talking because someone just took a big uh, a dookie. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the conversation. And so, and I do think that's what I see over and over again. I teach for NYU and always I'm writing in the margin, like, wait a minute, this is a great moment. Stay there, you know, mm-hmm. stay there in that moment. That's that, it. That's great. Well, I'm curious what, what novels or short story collections or memoirs have you read recently that you enjoyed? I've read a couple of great books right now. I'm reading water dancer. Um, I also just read uh, Our Country Friends by Gary Scheingart, and that was absolutely terrific. Um, It was about a group of friends who go away during the pandemic to live in a bungalow community. And it was told sort of like a Russian novel with omniscient, (laughs) you know, with an omniscient narrator jumping from character to character, which you never see. It's so old fashioned. It's a wonderful technique. I don't know whether I'll ever be able to do it. Um, Panchinko also had it, which I loved. Um, But it was, it's also funny and, and, and really powerful. And then I read this beautiful novel this week called, oh, it's called What We Do in the Dark or What We Do, We Do in the Dark by Michelle Hart. And it's about a young woman having a, an affair with her professor um, in college. And it's the opposite of that. You know, it's one narrator. It's, it's almost like unbearably pure an unbearably pure examination of loneliness and how she, um, and how she uses time. And I, I really like read it in a day and a half. Um, and I, 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 I got a lot out of it, you know, because it was so interior and that's sometimes the opposite of what I do. Like, um, and it was so, um, spare and I tend to be so lavish, you know, I never saw an adjective I didn't love and I love (laughs) adverbs too. I want to go all the way, you know, I, I love like, you know, I love how far like Flannery O'Connor will go with her prose. I love Southern writers and how, you know, they'll just talk about, you know, dirt, <laughs> you know, for a long time. But that's, that's where my heart is at the Russians and the Southern writers sure. always. Um, I want that exorbitancy. 
and I want that lavishness of prose. But reading the opposite sometimes can be really um, enlightening, you know? Yeah. That's great. That sounds great. Well, where can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about you and your new short story collection and your memoir? Oh, thanks. I think, I mean, I have leenewman.com. You can go to my website. It has a lot of the, you know, PR clips. And um, I'm also, you know what, I really am on Instagram a lot. And I think um, I'm Lee Newman Lives, L-E-I-G-H Newman Lives, L-I-V-E-S. And I'm constantly on there posting things, putting up, uh, I'll put links. I have a link tree there that gives you access to actually a lot of the stories were published. And so the ones I know from the Paris Review are up there and Harper's and Electric Literature. So I guess, honestly, I hate to be so um, obscenely uh, 21st century, but yeah, <laughs> I think the easiest way to find me is on Instagram. Instagram. That's great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Lee Newman, author of the short story collection, Nobody Gets Out Alive. The collection is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Lee, thanks for doing this interview. No, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much. Wonderful. Thanks a lot. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.